Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am the father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to another episode of After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. How are you doing tonight, Phil? It's all good here. How are you, Mike? I am doing quite well, thank you. I am super excited about tonight's episode. We have two great movies to talk about and we have our very first special guest. Yes. And on top of all that, we have some reader feedback. It is a jam-packed episode. I can't wait to jump into everything. Lots going on. Are you as excited as I am? Uh, Very excited. Uh, Looking forward to the guest spot and... uh... Looking forward to the, the films we're doing as well. Should be a good time. So yeah. Well, why don't we? Um, well, first of all, a, a couple of things actually. We have a lot to cover tonight, so we're going to just take it as it comes. Busy, busy, busy. That's right. First thing I want to do is I wanted to mention that a few weeks ago we talked about a charity that we were supporting called Aiden's A Team, which supports the JDRF, the Junior Diabetes Research Fund. And our friend of the show, Mike Nichter, and his team raised – their goal was to raise $10,000 for diabetes research. And not only did they reach that goal, they raised $11,600. They were – I believe they were in the top three teams for fundraising goals that they raised the most money. So that's pretty impressive. So we just want to say congratulations to them. That's amazing. Well done. Well done to everybody involved. It's fantastic news. Yeah, so big congratulations to those guys. All right, moving into our films. Phil, why don't you tell everybody what we're going to be talking about tonight? We will be talking a little bit later about The Crow, a 1994 film starring Brandon Lee. Uh, But first, we'll be doing the after the ending for Steve Martin's The Jerk, which was from 1979. We'll also be doing our top 10 films of 1974. Lots of fun stuff to get to. So, all right, why don't you start things off then, Phil, and tell us what makes The Jerk such a jerk. (laughs) Okay, The Jerk, directed by Carl Reiner, written by Steve Martin, Carl Gottlieb, and Michael Alias. It was also Steve Martin's first starring role. Okay, so to... Just bring you up to speed on the film. Okay, so Steve Martin plays Naven R. Johnson, and we open with him. He's a homeless man, and he tells us his story. He's the adopted son of an African-American family, yet he's unaware of being adopted. Uh, His lack of rhythm also sets him apart from the family, but he doesn't realise. But one night, he listens to Crazy Rhythm, and he starts dancing. He's finally got a bit of rhythm. Taking this as a sign, he hitchhikes to St. Louis, as that's where the song was broadcast from. Uh, Stopping at a hotel, he's woken by a dog. He thinks the dog's uh, alerting him to a fire. He wakes everybody up, but there's no fire. The crowd, obviously angry from being woken up, give the dog a a new name, which I won't mention here. (laughs) (laughs) Good idea. (laughs) Naven ends up uh, working at a gas station, and as he's there, we see that uh, some kind of psycho character is going through the phone book and picks Naven's name at random. He says, I'm going to kill him. Naven's uh, helping a customer called Stan Fox, sees he's having a problem with his glasses and runs in the back, puts a handle on them and a little nose break so they don't fall off. Uh, Fox is amazed by this and offers to split the profits of the invention and leaves. Uh, the psycho starts shooting at Naven and chases him into a carnival. I have to just say that's one of my favorite scenes of not just this movie, but any any comedy movie of yeah, all what? time when he's shooting at the cans. Yeah, and he's going, all oh, these cans are defective. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's these cans. Yeah. He hates the cans. Yeah. Stay away from the cans. It's I love adaptive. that. So good. Naven gets away from the, uh, the psycho killer and ends up getting a job at the carnival. And there he meets a scary stunt biker called Patty Bernstein. They end up in a relationship, and Naven finally discovers what his special purpose is for. Again, we won't go into it here. Yeah, we'll just we'll just leave that one. Yeah, yeah. He ends up meeting Marie, and they fall in love and sing a lovely song on the ukulele. But she ends up leaving him 
because he hasn't got a, a financial future. He's a bit all over the place. Eventually, though, Stan Fox gets back in touch and uh, Naven's invention, the OptiGrab, is a big hit and Naven's now a rich man. He finds and marries Marie and they get a huge mansion. Life is good. However, Carl Rayner, the director of this film, and millions of other people all end up cross-eyed because of the OptiGrab and Naven has to pay out 10 million in damages, leaving him bankrupt, homeless. Marie leaves him and we're back at the beginning of the film. Luckily, though, Marie turns up with Naven's family. They've been investing all the money that Naven sent home and are rich. It's a happy ending. Naven and Marie are back with Naven's family, and we end the film with everybody dancing away because Naven's got really good rhythm. <laughs> Nicely done. It obviously doesn't bring across the humour of the film because there's so many great little jokes and things. Right. Just, it's a right. very funny film. It is. It's very silly. It's very funny. Uh, but uh, I think he did a nice job. You know, we, we get the broad strokes across. <laughs> if people haven't seen The Jerk, they should go watch it. It's a very funny movie. Yeah. Uh, and, and our endings, well, I think, will probably make a lot more sense if you've seen the film. But hopefully you can enjoy them even if you haven't. That's correct. So what have you got then for your day after? All right. Well, the day after, uh, it, I actually pick up right when the movie ends. While Naven and Marie and his family are all singing and dancing yeah naven naven slips and falls and breaks his ankle which is lucky because right as he falls the crazed shooter shows up again <laughs> and takes a shot at him and hits the window behind where his head was just a minute ago <laughs> he takes another shot and he breaks another window so naven yells for his family to get the safety it's the windows he hates <laughs> these windows everybody stay away from the windows <laughs> I love the, it. the shooter thank you the shooter runs out of ammo and comes down to kill naven by hand but naven stops him by simply asking him what he's so angry about and the man sort of breaks down and we find out that he's depressed because he was discharged from the army ah naven asks him what he did in the army and the man tells him that he was a sharpshooter <laughs> but i'm so naven thinks the problem might be his eyesight so he gives him one of the opti grabs and the man tries it on and he realizes <laughs> that the problem that's caused millions of other people's <laughs> eyesight to go cross-eyed has actually fixed his vision oh. so he thanks naven and runs off to re-enlist in the army and then Naven goes to the hospital to get his broken ankle fixed. Okay, oh, I like that. <laughs> Thank you. Very <laughs> in keeping with the film. Yeah, I, I, I had some fun with this one. There's yeah. not a lot of seriousness to be found here in my endings. So. Okay, okay. Well, mine, <laughs> mine uh, Naven catches up with his family. Uh, mine's quite a, quite a boring day after, to be honest. Uh, he talks about what he's been up to. And Marie talks to him about what her future. And, but she suggests music as he can play the ukulele and sing. He never really thought about it before. And Naven's family, though, decide to keep a, a closer eye on him because he's a bit of an idiot. And <laughs> yeah. uh, they, they do worry about him. Sure, sure. And that, Absolutely. That's, that's my day after. It's short and sweet, but... Hey, there you go. That's there you go. I'm sure there is more to come. Oh, yeah, there's a lot more to come. Uh, what about your immediate aftermath? All right, so Naven and Marie settle down in the Johnson family homestead. Uh, Naven, however, isn't content just to live on his family's money, so he decides to throw himself full-time into inventing because he figures he you know, he did good with the OptiGrab, so maybe there's some more in him. Yeah. His first invention, however, is a new form of birth control, Oh, and good God. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a bust. So within a year, Marie is pregnant, and uh, <laughs> she gives birth to their baby daughter, who, despite being a girl, they name Naven R. Johnson II the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, meanwhile, the crazed shooter re-enlists in the army, gets deployed overseas, and goes on, with the help of the OptiGrab, to become the deadliest sniper in U.S. military history. Eventually, they make a movie about him called American Sniper. Oh, okay. Good stuff. <laughs> so, all right, how about your immediate aftermath? Okay, I've got Naven and Maria happy. They end up playing the local bars, singing songs, and uh, 
they prove very popular. Some of Nathan's family also play along with them when they have the chance and they all have a great time. The family's very, very happy. Eventually, though, the carnival comes into town and Patty Bernstein has decided she wants revenge on Marie, who ended up slapping her, well, punching her, knocking her out, didn't she, in the film. Uh, she turns up when Naven and Marie are playing. Patty gets very drunk and causes a commotion, starts heckling them. Naven talks to her and, unbeknownst to him, he is absolutely hilarious. The crowd love him. <laughs> nice. They think it's all part of the act. Eventually, though, Naven talks Patty round and he gets up on stage and he all sings a song until Patty ends up passing out through all the alcohol she's been drinking. Nice. So that's what I've got for that. And what about the long term? All right. So long term, it doesn't it doesn't get any any more serious from here. Let me <laughs> tell you. Um, so Naven keeps inventing, and he actually becomes quite good at it. And he goes on to create many of the '80s greatest crazes, including but not limited to. Go on. Uh, jelly bracelets. Yep. The Rubik's cube, which was almost called the Naven's cube. <laughs> uh, baby on board signs. The calculator watch. Garbage pail kids. <laughs> leg warmers. Micro machines, and unfortunately, the mullet. Oh, good God! <laughs> unfortunately, Naven loses much of his fortune from all of these inventions in the 1989 stock crash. So he decides to relocate to suburbia and settle into a regular life. Uh, since he's become somewhat infamous and reviled for creating the mullet. <laughs> Naven changes his name to George Banks so he can try and fit in more. And a couple of years later, his daughter, Naven R. Johnson II, the sequel, who's taken on the nickname of Annie, okay. announces that she's getting married. And Naven <laughs> finds that he has a hard time being the father of the bride. Oh, excellent. As usual. I, I like it. I bring it around to another movie, but there you go. <laughs> no, that's a good one. I like that. Thank you. Okay. How about you? What do we got? I've got Naven, after the success of uh, playing in the bars and proving very funny, He's become a hugely successful comedian, musician, and uh, he's described as a wild and crazy guy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. However, he can't understand what people find so funny as he just talks about his life, but he does love making people laugh, so he carries on. Him and Marie eventually get married, and they have a child. Uh, they call it Lloyd Johnson, mm -hmm. but they give him a middle name based on the, the holiday in which he was born, which was Christmas. And Lloyd eventually likes to just be called Lloyd Christmas. Lloyd Christmas. Very nice. Right. Thank you very much. <laughs> that would uh, mean that the jerk gave birth to a son who was dumb and maybe had a friend who was Even dumber. dumber, yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> very good. Yeah, there you go. That's a good way to tie two movies together about very, very stupid people. Yeah, I thought, I thought so, yeah. Stupid is as stupid does. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I've always wondered why the jerk wasn't, wasn't called the idiot because it always seemed to me that he was more of an idiot than a jerk. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. He's not like a mean guy. He's just stupid. Well, actually, funny you should mention that uh, – there was Dostoevsky's book, The Idiot, mm -hmm. and Steve Martin, he said he wanted to, he wanted the, the film to be called something short. You have the feeling of an epic tale like Dostoevsky's The Idiot, but not like that, like The Jerk, as he oh, put there it. there you go. So there you go. So you, were, you hit the nail on the head. It was exactly what they were going for. Excellent. You, you came out a different way. There you go. See, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, very nicely done, Phil. Do you have any uh, jerky trivia for us? <laughs> jerky trivia? Well, it's you got beef. <laughs> right. And, uh, and then you dehydrate it for several yeah. hours. It's, it's quite it's expensive. Like, <laughs> uh, well, it was based, the whole concept was based on a line from Martin, Steve Martin's stand-up act uh, where he said, I, it wasn't always easy for me. I was born a poor black child. Right, right, right. And that's where it sort of came on. And I think they wrote, he wrote lots of different bits and pieces, which all eventually came together to be the film. Right. Uh, Stanley Kubrick apparently loved the film. It was one of his favorites. Really? Uh, yeah, that would surprise me. But, yeah, seriously. Uh, Bill Murray 
was going to have a cameo in it in a scene, but that was cut from the final film, which uh, would have been nice to see. But sure, I'd, sure. Because it's always good to see a bit of Bill Murray. And there was one little bit of trivia, which I found, well, a little bit interesting. Jackie Mason's in the jerk. He plays a character called Harry Hortanian, or Hortonian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And nine years later, Jackie Mason play, played a character called Jack Hortonian in Caddyshack 2. Yeah, interesting. I have no idea if they were going to they were related in any way, but sometimes they do that, don't you, with comedy thing characters? They... Yeah, just to have fun with it and, and tie mm. things together for the for the uh, for the the audience with the sharp eye, you know. Yeah. Oh, and one other thing as well. Steve Martin's favorite moment of the film was when him and Bernadette Peters sing "Tonight You Belong to Me." Martin felt the moment was very touching, and at the film's premiere, he was really looking forward to that scene coming up. And the scene came along, and most of the audience left to go and buy some popcorn. <laughs> That's terrible. Well, it's a musical number. Not everybody likes them. Well, sure. I know I get that, but I, you know, poor Steve Martin. <laughs> I know. Must have been gutted. I'm sure. I'm sure he was. Oh, jeez. Well, there you go. So those are our endings for uh, The Jerk. It's a fun film. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Believe me, we didn't spoil anything by telling you the story. It's not really a yeah. movie that, that predicates on a, on a, you know, a heavy plot line. So. It's all about the jokes. Exactly. All right. Well, if you have thoughts on how you think The Jerk might have ended after the ending, feel free to drop us a line. We'll fill you in on how to do that a little bit later in the episode. So why don't we move on then to our second film, which is very near and dear to my heart, and it is The Crow. Yes, The Crow, 1994 film, and I do believe we have a special guest who starred in the film who will be giving us there after the ending. That's right. We were very fortunate to speak with Rochelle Davis, who plays 12-year-old Sarah in the film. And she's a major character. She is uh, one of the stars of the film alongside Brandon Lee and Ernie Hudson. And so I actually caught up with her just a week or so ago. And she was she was great, first of all, but she was also kind enough to let me pick her brain a little bit. And she told us what she thinks her character of Sarah would be doing now and what her after the ending is. So we're really excited to get to share our first kind of celebrity after the ending where somebody who played a character character that we're going to talk about really tells us what what they think happened to that character so we're, we're, it's pretty cool I, I'm, abs- I'm absolutely blown away it's amazing that uh, you managed to meet her and also that the, she said yes I mean it's so many thanks to her for doing that yes absolutely we're very thrilled and um, she was like I said she was great she couldn't have been nicer and I, I really like her ending as well I think she did a, a very uh, she's clearly put some thought into you know where this character would have gone probably yeah. much more thought than, than we are about to <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to share that in just a few minutes after we finish our endings but first let's get into The Crow shall we Phil? Yes, looking forward to your summing it up. All right. Well, The Crow, like you said, 1994, directed by Alex Proyas. I believe it was his first feature film, and he went on to do some really great work, including Dark City, which is another one of my favorites. Oh, I love, yeah, I love that film. I like that one. Yep, and uh, he did iRobot and several other really good films. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. I agree with you there. So the film obviously also starred the late Brandon Lee, who infamously died on the set. It was very tragic. Yeah. Um, I had actually been a big fan of Lee's even before this film. I I had seen all of his films that had been released up until that point, which wasn't very many. He only starred in, I think, four or five films, very much like his father, Bruce Lee. So this was obviously very upsetting. A lot of people do believe this would have been the movie that would have made Brandon Lee a really big movie star. Yeah, it seemed to be, didn't it? He had a, he had a great presence in the film. Yeah, he did. And he he's fantastic, and the movie is, is just amazing. And I do think, honestly, that had he lived, it would have also still been a big hit, and it would have transformed his career overnight. But unfortunately, it didn't. Uh, watching the film and reading up about it afterwards, reading about what happened, it was just it was just such a terrible catalogue of errors that just led to tragedy. 
That's exactly what it so was. So sad, so sad. Yeah, it really was a, a number of things going wrong that just sort of all led to this, you know, this terrible circumstance. But um, anyway, it, it, you know, the film is fantastic and Brandon Lee was terrific and, and he's missed. I think he I think he would have gone on to have an excellent career. But oh, definitely. We'll yeah. never know for sure. So, yeah. all right, enough. Uh, I, don't, I don't do emotion all that well. I'm much better at sarcasm and humor. So let's move on. <laughs> let's go. Um, and uh, we'll see what the film is all about. So The Crow. It's the night before Halloween in Detroit. And this is the ugly nasty Detroit, not the, well, a lot of Detroit, I think people consider it that way, but it's it's definitely a dark vision of Detroit. Yeah, it's like Gotham. Yeah, exactly. Very much like, like Gotham City, right. Police Sergeant Albrecht is at the scene of a crime where a woman has been beaten and sexually assaulted and her fiance, a rock musician named Eric Draven, has been killed by being thrown out of the window of their, their loft. They were supposed to be getting married the next day. Officer Albrecht then meets Sarah, a young girl who shows up at the crime scene, and she tells him that she's a friend of Eric and Shelley, the deceased couple, and that they've basically been kind of taking care of her. We learn that it's because her mom is a drug addict and she's mixed up with some really bad guys. Uh, unfortunately, after about 30 hours of pain, Shelley does not survive the events of the night before. Officer Albrecht, however, stays with her until the end. A year later, a mysterious crow lands on the grave of Eric Draven, who then rises from the dead and climbs out of his grave. He goes back to his apartment and has a bunch of flashbacks that reveal his and Shelley's fates, and he also sees who's responsible for it. And it's a gang with members named T-Bird, Tintin, Funboy, and Skank. They're all great names, great gang names. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it... it it might sound funny when you hear it on a show like this, but in the context of the film, it yeah. really works, you know? Yeah, they're nasty, and it just, yeah, you're right, it does, it fits them. So, guided by the crow, and now able to heal instantly, he begins exacting his revenge on everyone involved. While he's killing Fun Boy, he uses his mystical powers to convince Sarah's mother that she needs to be a good mom and give up the drugs by basically forcing the drugs out of her system he she basically like leaks heroin out of her track marks it's yeah, it's a good it's, scene yeah it's pretty intense yeah so then eric visits albrecht who tells him about what happened to shelly and the crow eric basically absorbs all of shelly's pain that albrecht was there for and, and he takes the pain from albrecht and absorbs it into himself that's a, that's another powerful scene as well actually because it's like hours and hours of pain and agony she was going through wasn't it before she died it was yeah yeah 30 hours is what they is what they say in the film so it's a lot then he meets up with sarah the young girl and they have a touching reunion as well after he goes through and dispatches all of the gang members who killed him and shelly eric returns to his grave but in killing all of the gang members he's angered the sort of head of all the gangs named top dollar and so he kidnaps sarah to draw Eric in so he can get his own revenge. I must say, though, uh, Top Dollar, that's uh, Michael Wincott, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes, he's is. got a, He's got such a, such a good voice. He really does. Yeah, I think, I think it was the first time. I'd, I think I'd seen him in other things, but the first time I'd really noticed him, and it was just that, <laughs> yeah, we're <laughs> going to get him. That's oh, right. Yeah, yeah. He's, than that, though. he's great. He's a, he plays a great villain. He does yeah. really have that, that awesome voice for it. So as Eric goes to save Sarah... Top Dollar's enforcer shoots the crow that sort of comes with Eric everywhere, and that's the source of his powers. And so without the crow being healthy, it costs Eric his invincibility. 
So he still goes in to save Sarah, and he ends up on the roof of the church in a brutal fist fight with Top Dollar. And eventually, even though Top Dollar starts to get the upper hand, Eric grabs him and releases all of Shelley's pain right into Top Dollar. And he basically zaps him with this collective 30 hours of everything that Shelley went through. And it shocks Top Dollar, shocks the system completely, and he falls off the roof and dies. Eric returns to his grave, where he's reunited with Shelley in the afterlife. And the film ends with the words... Buildings burn, people die, but real love is forever. So I get a little choked up every time I, I hear could, that. I, I could hear that, yeah. <laughs> it's had a big, you know, you've had a, had a big impact on you, this film, wasn't it? You know, it it did. I um, I was a big fan of the comic book that it was based on. Oh, it's a very good one, isn't it? Yeah, if, it is. If people don't know, it was made by James O'Barr. Right. It was an, an independent comic in the late 80s by James O'Barr based on a real event that happened to him, loosely based on a real event mm. that happened to him. His girlfriend was killed by a drunk driver, and this was sort of his therapy, his way of dealing with it. And I had read that book several times, and I, I loved it so much. It was so dark, and it was so different from all of the superhero comics that I'd been reading at the time and everything. And yeah, uh, it really stood out, didn't it, amongst all the other comics? Yeah, it definitely did. It was definitely unlike anything else. And, um, you know, then they decided to make the film which i got really excited about and i was you know was following it as much as you could back then and then of course brandon lee dies which i just you know really really you know hit me and then the film came out and i just you know i fell in love with it it's just such a great movie and you know i watched it not long ago at all and it it still holds up i was a little worried that it might be dated because it's 20 years old now it really does hold up so well and what I've always loved the most about it is that even though it's this, you know, dark, violent action film, the, the action sequences in it are, are fantastic. I think Alex Preuss is a great director and it's his visual style in the film really comes through. But I thought yeah. Brandon Lee's performance was amazing. And what I love is that at the heart of this whole, you know, dark gothic action film is this love story. Yeah, that's because that's what it is. It's pure love is what causes it all, causes yeah, it to come back. Exactly. I mean, he comes back to life not because of anything except for, obviously he comes back for vengeance, but what fuels that is this love he has for, for his fiance, And I think that you know it's a really powerful love story that's wrapped up in a great yeah you know action but i think it also helped though it had a as well as the way it looked and the fight, great fight scenes and and the, the love story it had a really good soundtrack as well oh yeah that soundtrack was i think on everybody's you know in everybody's mm-hmm. cd player back in the 90s it was some really great you know some really powerful music from some of the most popular bands at the time you know it's yeah. fantastic stuff and also uh, i think it's probably one of the first Comic book movies, proper comic book movies, wasn't it? Thinking about it. It really, I mean, you know, aside from like your your classic 70s stuff, like the Superman movies and all, yeah. it, it sort of did launch the kind of modern day comic book film. And, you know, it's it's also one of those things when everybody talks about Deadpool being like the first R-rated, you know, comic book movie. And it's like, whoa, whoa, The Crow, you know, was yeah, there yeah. before anybody else. It was before Blade. It was before Deadpool. You know, it was the first R-rated comic book film that I know of. Maybe the original Punisher. Oh, uh, yeah. The, uh, the Dolph Lundgren one. Yeah, but that didn't really get released anywhere, like mainstream, you know. Yeah. But and, the... it, and it wasn't really Punisher, was it, that one? <laughs> no, it really wasn't. But, uh, yeah, you know, The Crow really kind of launched in the 90s the sort of comic book renaissance that led to movies like Blade and the X-Men movies that started coming out and really, you know, pushing comics into the mainstream. So, yeah. you know, it's it's one of those films that I think... You know, luckily it does have a good following. It's got a, a you know a cult following. It was also a mainstream hit. It made it made pretty good money at the box office, and you know, so it is a film that's appreciated. But yeah, I think for some people like myself, it definitely has a, a special place in my heart. Oh, definitely. I think that's obvious from the way you've been talking about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, because I I've I always loved it from the beginning, but it never 
it, I don't think it affected me as much as it, it got to you, but I, I totally appreciated everything you said about it. Right, it's, right. Well, you know, it's, it's yeah. right. I mean, different people will certainly have different reactions to it. And it all, it all depends how you what, what your frame of mind is as well when you first see the film. Right, Same exactly, film. exactly. And I think you know the nice thing about it is. It, you know, if you watch it and you get an emotional impact from it, great. If you watch it and you just love it because it's a kick-ass action movie, that's great too because it is. Yeah. And you know, it's it's it the, it is a great action film on top of everything else. You know, so yeah, that, and that's to, that's part of what I love about it so much. You know, I I love action movies and it's so well done. And yet, there's another layer to it, so it it just works on multiple levels for me. But what do we say though to people who you know because we we have laid down the rules where we don't do films with sequels and there have been some other crow movies, right? Well, so here's here's what we uh here's what we came up with for that so originally yeah. i thought because each crow movie that's come out only one came out theatrically the other two came out direct to video and each one of them deals with a different crow and different circumstances yes. so originally i thought well yes. they don't even tie in at all but i did realize that the crow city of angels which was the second movie which starred vincent perez yeah uh, and was horribly disappointing um yeah. it did feature mia Kirshner as a grown-up sarah Oh, that's right, yeah. So technically, we're going to break our rules tonight, but we're just going to ignore that film because it wasn't very good. It's, yeah, and it's not very good. I don't good. really care. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when it yeah. comes to The Crow, it's, I'm just going to throw the rules out the window. It's our show, and, and rules are malleable. That's right, exactly. And I, I think people will allow it. Th- I think they'll forgive us in this case. So, <laughs> All right, so Phil, why don't you start things rolling then and give us your day after? Okay, the day after all the events that have gone on, Sarah and her mum, uh, start chatting, getting on together, and she also Sarah spends some time with Albrecht trying to process what they've gone through because it's been huge events, life-threatening, bizarre, strange things going on. Uh, they've got to get over the fact that Eric returned from the grave, which is mind-blowing and incredibly scary. But even though, you know, they knew he was uh, on their side, and also the crime gangs are now in disarray with the top dollar and everybody being killed. So there's a there's a power vacuum going on in the city, right? So that's what I've got for that. Very good. I'm uh, I'm not too far removed from that, actually. So yeah. in my day after, Sarah and Albrecht go to the hospital, get patched up. They get tended to and released. And the next day, they go to visit Eric's grave. Uh, much like you said, there's a kind of a sense of, did that all really happen? Yeah. You know, about the whole thing. Yeah, you're right. You'd be thinking it was a dream, wouldn't you? Yeah, definitely. Or a horrible nightmare. Right, because it's kind of like you said, people coming back from the dead and, you know, all of this, you know, all this kind of supernatural stuff, you know? Yeah. And when they get to the grave, the dirt doesn't even look like it's been disturbed. So, you know, they're definitely sort of questioning the events. But there's also no denying that Top Dollar and all of his cronies are all dead. So, you know, they're, they're definitely sort of trying to process everything. Yeah. But while they're at the grave, a crow lands on the gravestone. It looks at them both for a minute, and then it flies away. And Albrecht says it's got to be a coincidence, but Sarah looks at where the bird was standing and sees that it's left a small, bloody talon print right there on the gravestone, pretty much proving that it was the same crow that had been helping Eric that had gotten shot the day before. Okay, I like that. So there's my day after. Very nice. Thank you. How about your immediate aftermath? Okay, well, uh, it's a few few weeks and months gone gone by. Sarah's getting on very well with her mum. They're building bridges. They've... They're getting, they're having a proper mother-daughter relationship once more. She's also met a, a young chap called Carl. He knows she went through a lot. He, do, he doesn't push it or anything, but eventually she talks about it. And at first he doesn't believe it, because it's it's obviously quite a fantastical story. But he tracks down Albrecht, who at this point is still a police officer, but he's drinking more and more because because of the events he went through. He lost some good friends, good people, and it was he's still finding it hard to cope with exactly what happened. And And the city is also still going through a bit of a crime wave there's like it's there's lots of low level kind of crimes going on but 
organizations start to come in and it's as as happens and things people rise to power dif- different uh different gangs from different places are coming in things like that so it's all a bit of a mess he's busier than ever but he's drinking but uh carl sarah's a new boyfriend he gets confirmation from albrecht about what happened and about the crow so carl starts researching this and he finds more reports of similar events around the world about people apparently coming back from the dead or stories of it anyway and there's always this crow kind of thing that goes on and it starts to become an obsession with him and he starts talking about it more and more and other people start listening to him mm-hmm. so that's my immediate aftermath what about yours interesting i'm very i'm very curious to see where you're going with this ah. <laughs> all right so for my immediate aftermath sarah and her mom patch up their relationship Uh, It takes some time, but her mom is working hard at it, and Sarah is receptive to her. She's off the drugs, thanks to Eric's intervention. And uh, Sarah, who had been missing a lot of school because she was mostly hanging out at Eric and Shelley's place, recommits to going back to school and getting a good education. You know, she's seen what kind of future she has if she continues down the path that, that she's been on. So she begins working hard to make something of herself. Albrecht, meanwhile, gets promoted to detective and starts really making a difference in the town. He becomes known as one of the only cops in Detroit who's not on the take. And he basically becomes the Commissioner Gordon of Detroit, if you will. Yeah, I can see that. He and Sarah remain close over the years because of their shared experience with Eric. And that's where I'll leave it for now. So okay. how about your uh, how about your long term? OK, well, I've got Sarah and her mom getting on really well. It's, it's a few years later. They've uh, they left Detroit in the interim, moved to L.A. Uh, Sarah got eventually getting involved in the music business and she's very happy. And her mum, her mum's just working away as well. And they're both both in a really good place. Uh, Albrecht got himself together, and he managed to become detective. Sarah though ended up breaking up with Carl because his obsession with the crow. He was just getting more and more caught up in it. And he's now uh, Carl is now the leader of the crows, like uh, an organisation he started, a vigilante group who target perpetrators of violent crimes. Started off like the Guardian Angels kind of thing, but it's got it's got more and more extreme, and the methods they use are getting worse and worse. And it isn't long before. A murder of crows, as they put it, is the way they deal with people. Mm. So more dead bodies start popping up in uh, in Detroit. Uh, the crows spread through other cities because, as you see in Fight Club and other things, these kind of things spread. People there's like a some people enjoy a bit of violence, unfortunately. Uh, end up one of the uh, the crows, one of the groups in L.A. They're chasing down a suspected murderer who is actually innocent, and start shooting at them during a car chase. And unfortunately, Sarah and her mum caught in the crossfire and killed oh no yeah it's sad yeah so weeks later though albrecht he's he's come to la and he's visiting sarah's grave his heart's broken at how unjust it all is and how he's lost another good friend to this violence which is spreading and he's just he turns away i was just about to leave when a crow lands on sarah's gravestone and taps tap tap mm-hmm. very nice albrecht waits to welcome sarah back and help her bring the crows down very nice i like it i like it a lot yeah sad but that's the way the film is yeah F- fits some of the story doesn't but it, it? it well you know it it fits in right it fits right in with the world of the crow actually so yeah. absolutely although i did think when you talked about carl getting obsessed with people coming back from the dead i thought maybe he was going to turn out to be rick's son from the walking dead <laughs> oh yeah good god no i was like that. carl Carl, yeah. you know, Carl. I thought maybe yeah. that's where you're going to talk with that. stuff and things. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> All right, very nice. Thank you very much. So, uh, what about your long term? All right, well, several years later, Sarah graduates from college. Albrecht has left the police force to enter politics. He's become committed to returning Detroit to its former glory and has successfully become the mayor of Detroit. Oh, nice. He decides to run for Senate so he can make bigger and more wide sweeping changes. 
When Sarah graduates, he gives her a job on his campaign. They've remained close friends, and so she becomes not only a staff member, but also his closest confidant. Albrecht is building momentum, he's winning people over, and he's really on his way to revamping Detroit. When he announces a huge anti-crime reform bill as part of his platform, an up-and-coming crime boss named Gold Dust doesn't like what he's hearing and has Albrecht assassinated. Sarah is devastated because he's been like a father figure to her basically over the past six years. She ends up, you know, crying kind of just in a, you know, in a daze. And she ends up back at Eric's grave, just crumbled on the ground and crying on the grave. Yeah. Suddenly, a crow lands on Eric's gravestone. (laughs) The ground starts to move and Eric Draven rises from the dead once again. The crow will have vengeance for Albrecht's death. Oh, nice. So there you go. So obviously some similarities in our endings there. You know, I think uh, in this world, that is sort of what, you know, the type of thing that might happen. Yeah, the crow's going to come back, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. Just so uh, any first-time listeners, we neither Mike or myself know what the other one's written, so any similar endings like this is a is a nice surprise. That's right. Ex- absolutely. So, Phil, before we get into our uh, extra special guest star, do you have any tidbits you want to share about the crow? Yeah, only just a couple of things. Uh, apparently, Brandon Lee, he wasn't happy with the face makeup that the makeup artists were doing, so Lee and, and Alex, uh, Brandon and Alex, they agreed that... Brandon Lee would apply the makeup the night before they were shooting and sleep in it. So when he woke up, it'd have that slightly worn, you know, the way it was like always messed up. It was never pristine, right. was it? So no, exactly. I think that was the best way he could do it. And also, James O'Barr, he initially wanted Johnny Depp to play Eric. Oh, that's interesting. But that didn't happen. And River Phoenix and Christian Slater uh, turned down the role. <laughs> really? Yeah, which all of them at the time, I and mean, Johnny Depp at the time, 1994, that would have been quite interesting. I think all of those... Would have brought something different to it. I think could have all worked. I don't maybe. know about Christian Slater. I, I don't know about him per se, but I think River yeah, Phoenix yeah. and Johnny Depp both actually would have been quite good in the role mm. for would sure. Have, it would have been quite different, but uh, yeah, it would have been interesting to see. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. All right, so uh, now is the part of the show we're very excited about. So, like I said earlier, this is Rochelle Davis. She played Sarah in the film, and she is now all grown up. And so, here are her thoughts on what happened to Sarah after the ending of The Crow. So, uh, as I explained, you know, part of what we do is like to find out what happens to characters after movies end. So, so what do you think would have happened to Sarah after The Crow ended? Um, well, I think after it ended, um, she would have had a little bit of peace inside of herself um, with being able to see him again, um, get the ring from him, you know, all those, all those little sentimental things. Um, I actually wrote a thing about it on Facebook um, one time because it just really intrigued me the idea of where she would have gone with her life, like what she would have done with herself. So I put her as like an artist and musician, kind of a scattered brained, you know, uh, lives in a loft, wears like funky clothes, rides a motorcycle, does like graphic design for like an actual job, but does all her artwork for the side stuff. Um, you know, stuff like that I would I would see Sarah doing. I would see her <clears throat> probably having a pretty good relationship with her mother at that point um, and always having a really strong relationship with Officer Albrecht um, and keeping in contact with him. Um, so I, I just saw, like, her kind of blossoming into this beautiful, like, happier version of Sarah. Like, still that funky attitude and clothing and stuff, but in a more light-hearted kind of way because she could let go of some of that grief that she went through during the film. Very cool. Well, I I personally, 
I'm a bit of a sucker for happy endings in, in our show. My co-host likes to turn people into serial killers. So I don't know which way he's going to go with you yet, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably lean towards your version of things. <laughs> I, I love serial killers. I'm all about it. But um, I don't think that's what Eric would want for Sarah. I think he would want to see Sarah move on. Uh, yeah, I just, I just think that he would want her to move on and be happy. I don't think he would want to see her like become a vengeful, mean-spirited person. However, the city she was uh, lived in, in my in my version, was starting to go downhill, and she started to ta- uh, take on this idea of maybe becoming a kind of a vigilante in the area, like a live vigilante, right, right. Um, with the help of like her boyfriend to to do the technical stuff and mm-hmm. like plant cameras in her head and things so she could beat up bad guys and such. But that was the only like it wasn't like really killing. It was more of just like cleaning up the area and letting her letting them know she was boss in the area and right. like not to mess with her. Very cool. I love that. That was great. That I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's in- inter- interesting to hear a viewpoint on what you thought happened with the character. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It was cool to see, and I a couple of minor similarities even. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. Also, also, a first guest star. How cool is that? Yeah, pretty exciting. Yeah. And from a movie that is so near and dear to my heart, even that's uh, it's pretty yeah, exciting. Even better. Yeah. Pretty exciting. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I also got the chance to ask Rochelle a few other questions about making the movie. So I thought we would share those with you guys as well. So here is Rochelle Davis one more time talking about making The Crow. So Rochelle, what do you remember most about making The Crow? Uh, What I remember most is that um, all of the cast and crew was really fun and like lighthearted and like childlike. So I felt um, I was always a little above my age, and I I felt like the crew was a little below their age in in funness, not in maturity, but just in just in the way they had fun. So my best memories is just that it was just a hoot, just a lot of fun, a lot of like little games and laughs and jokes and you know picking on each other banter stuff like that and you know i was curious about your character you know sarah's obviously a very like tough tomboyish character was that was that very you or was that the opposite of you at that time in your life um that was a little bit like me i was a little mixture of the two like i like to put on makeup and do my hair and go out and look pretty but then there were times that i just put on shorts and a t-shirt and climb trees and got into dirt so it was kind of a, it was it wasn't really either either of those things because you know Sarah wasn't like out playing in dirt and, and climbing trees she was you know skateboarding and doing the tough street girl thing so that really wasn't me but I had to kind of embody it with what I did know about being tough and then add in the sensitive part that I knew I had in myself to to show that she had this really soft side that she wasn't allowed to show people. Often, at least. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right, one last question for you then. I uh, just wanted to, you know, obviously a lot of people love The Crow, love Brandon Lee. So I was just curious what your experience working with him was like. My experience with him was um, phenomenal. Um, he was one of the nicest men I've ever met in my life. I have met very few people as sweet and kind and good-hearted and just pure as he was um so working with him was amazing and i love being able to come out to these conventions and such because you know there's so many people that didn't get a chance to experience his light and his spirit and i've spoken with his mother about this many times um via email we've never met in person yet but 
uh, we email back and forth and I tell her, you know, that, that my main concern when I go to a convention is to let the fans know what an amazing, incredible guy he was as a person and as an actor. And um, just hope that that spirit just keeps flowing through people, through the movie, and through knowing about him being so amazing. That's fantastic. Well, Rochelle, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. No problem. It was fun. Brilliant stuff. Uh, Many thanks to Rochelle for taking the time to do that. All right. So moving on, we have some other stuff we want to get to. Before we get into our little mini feature, uh, as we like to call them, uh, we have some reader feedback we want to share. So, Phil, I'm going to start things off if that's okay with you. That works for me. So longtime listener Jay Tanner Perry, who has written into the show before and actually was the person who suggested that we do an ending for The Last Starfighter. Oh, yeah. He shared his after the ending of The Last Starfighter with us, so I thought it'd be fun for you guys to hear what he had going on there. So according to Jay... The screening process for recruiting people to the Starfighter program are so lax that Zur sees an opportunity to continue his fight. He starts off slow, but over the years, his people reach high positions in the government. Before the government can realize what's happened, the Star League becomes the Kodan Armada, and Zur is in command of the greatest pilots in the galaxy. I like that, the swine. <laughs> so, yeah. Alex, Maggie, and a bunch of rebels flee and end up on an isolated ice planet where they meet another fleeing group of rebels fighting off a different type of empire. <laughs> Very nicely done, Jay. Thank you for sharing that with us. I, I have to say, personally, I especially appreciate you bringing it around to uh, meet up with another movie because, as we know, <laughs> that is a, a, a favorite of mine. So Yeah, it does seem to be a running theme. Yeah, nicely done. Yeah, very good. And for those who want to know, it was episode nine when we talked about The Last Starfighter along with Pulp Fiction. Exactly. Also with episode nine, we talked about the top 10 films in 1986. And we asked what the top 10 films of that year were. And Abdusemi and my Abdullah, apologies if I didn't pronounce the name right, but a uh, long-time listener, he, uh, he gave us his top 10. And it was 10, The Money Pit. Nine was nine and a half weeks. Eight was The Mission, which is a great film. Seven, The Name of the Rose, which I love as well. Six was Cobra, but it's Stallone. Yeah, I love that one. Five, The Color of Money, which, as I said at the time, at the time, yeah, I didn't quite enjoy that one as much as I thought I would. Four was Manhunter, which is excellent. Three was Top Gun. Two was Hannah and Her Sisters. And number one, like me, was Big Trouble in Little China. So thank you very much for sharing them. Yeah, great list. Obviously, a lot of picks that we both agreed with. So thank you for sharing that. All right, so now we're going to move on to our next mini feature, and this is something we do in between our endings and our top tens just to sort of uh, have a little fun. And this might be our most ridiculous one yet. What do you think, Phil? (laughs) It's getting up there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. All right, so today's new feature is called Kenny Rogers in Film. And uh, this came about actually (laughs) – see, it just sounds stupid when you say it out loud. You say it out loud, yeah. So this came about actually for a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all – this may not be known to many people. I'm actually a huge Kenny Rogers fan. Uh, I listen to his music. I love his music. It's uh, one of those weird things that I picked up from my mom when I was a kid, and I've just always loved Kenny Rogers. So anytime <laughs> I have an opportunity to talk about Kenny Rogers, I'll take it. And he has also been in films. He has been in films, but that's not what we're going to talk about because that would make too much sense. <laughs> so um, this actually got its genesis because of a throwaway joke in another podcast that I listened to, the great uh, Mark Kermode and Simon Mayo there also film critics and they made a throwaway joke about Kenny Rogers being in Taxi Driver which got me thinking about what would other classic films be like if Kenny Rogers had been cast in one of the major roles so 
we're going to try this out. This is a brand new idea, and we haven't really discussed it all that much. So this will either be really cool or really terrible. I apologize in advance if it's the latter. And basically what we're going to do is Phil and I are going to try and kind of stump each other a little. We're going to throw out a film at each other without the other one knowing what it is and basically see what role we would recast on the fly yeah. with Kenny Rogers instead of the actor who was in the role. So uh, who's going first, Phil? Who's going to be the first guinea pig for this fantastic experiment? Uh, well, it's your idea, so I will give you the film. Okay. You pick. All right. Okay, so the first film for Kenny Rogers, it's the 1987 sci-fi action horror film Predator. <laughs> All right, so who would Kenny Rogers play in Predator, huh? Um well, I don't know that we can lose Dutch because I think I don't know that I can uh, fully get behind Kenny Rogers taking on the Predator all on his own. You know, you know who I think he would be. Go on. I would cast him in the role of Billy. Billy, as you may recall, was the giant Native American who took on the Predator single-handedly and uh, cut himself across the chest with his giant machete. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty much a big badass. So I could see. Kenny Rogers getting all shirtless and, you know, like grim and gritty and taking on the Predator and only to have his spine ripped out. I, I think that would work. Okay. And it, it, it screams would be so musical and beautiful. <laughs> Just, exactly. Uh, I think, you know, he would get up on that, that giant fallen log and he'd, he'd rip off his shirt and he'd drag his machete across his chest and he'd say, you got to know when to hold them. You got to know <laughs> when to fold them. Oh, Christ. I didn't, know we, <laughs> I, I didn't know we had to quote some song lyrics of his. Oh, no. <laughs> you, you don't have to, but I happen to be able to, to do that because I'm yeah. a big fan of his music, so I, why not? <laughs> no, I like that. Yeah, it's Billy. Yeah, he'd be good. There you get, go. All right, good good choice, get, Phil. Get to the chopper, Kenny. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I didn't, uh, I didn't stray too far, actually, for you then. So my film for you is... The 1982 classic John Carpenter film, The Thing. Oh, The Thing, one of my all-time favorite films. Okay, so who Kenny Rogers would, of course, be? It's got to be Charles. Mm, yes. Yeah, Charles, yeah. Because he's there, he's, you know, he's he's cool, you know, he's uh, he's going to say how it is, he's going to... He's not going to like any messing around. He's also going to be on the same. Kenny Rogers has got an awesome beard, like uh, Russell has an awesome beard. <laughs> right. So, you know, they're going to be on the same side for a bit. And then just imagine at the end, uh-huh. you've got you've got McCready and Childs, Kurt Russell and Kenny Rogers <laughs> having a face-off. <laughs> that is, put, that is put, quite put a, the mental image, I have to say. I, instead of the bottle of uh, whiskey or, as some people think it could be, petrol. Uh-huh. So that getting passed around, they pass around the guitar. There you go. There you go. There you go. That is quite quite the mental image of Kurt Russell and Kenny Rogers sitting out in the snow by a dying fire at yeah. the end of at the end of that film. Oh, I like that. Good choice. Good choice. Thank you. I appreciate you picking that film. Oh, of course. You know, listen, yeah. I, I know what a fan you are. I am too. So yeah. it's uh, going to be crazy doing the after the end for the thing. At some point. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely on the list. Mm. Uh, and that'll be showing up, I think, sooner rather than later. So, mm. all right. Well, that was Kenny Rogers in film. I don't know about you, <laughs> Phil. I had a good time with it. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, good. Well, so we'll see. Uh, readers, let us know what you think. You know, we're, we're rotating these mini features, so we'd love to hear whether you like them, which ones you like the most, if you think Kenny Rogers and film was fun, if you never want to see it again. You know, let us know. We'll, we'll tell you I can get in touch with us in just a little bit. All right, so let's uh, move on then to our 100 years of film in 100 episodes. This week we are doing 1974. Phil, why don't you take us back in your time machine? And tell us what the world was like in 1974. Okay, let's jump into DeLorean and let's see what happened. So, okay, so let's set the scene. 1974, we've got the British Prime Minister was Harold Wilson. And over in the US, President Nixon said bye-bye and Gerald Ford said hello. Some of the events that happened in the air, we had Patty Hearst was kidnapped and then turned up a bit later on on the side of the kidnappers. 
Peter Penchley's Jaws was published. Charles de Gaulle Airport was open in France. Uh, Lucille Ball aired the finale of Hers Lucy. I think it was the last ever TV show she did. Over in China, the Terracotta Army was discovered, which uh, I thought had been discovered a lot earlier than that. But yeah, me too. I didn't realise it was that recent. Uh, the world population reached the heady heights of 4 billion people. <laughs> if only. Uh, yeah. And Stephen King published his first novel, which was Carrie. Wow. Which is amazing, yeah. yeah. Uh, Abba won the Eurovision Song Contest with Waterloo. And brought us all those terrible costumes, but people seem to love them. <laughs> right. Uh, Philippe Petit crossed the Twin Towers on a high wire, yep. which was in the excellent, um, was it Man on Wire, the documentary? Yes. Yeah, Man on Wire. And then we also had The Walk, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt right. last year. Mm-hmm. Over in the BBC, there was a service called CFAX. It was like a text thing, which which uh, you, you probably, I don't know if you had anything like that in the States, but it just had all the news. come When they, when they stopped broadcasting the programmes of an evening, this would come on, give all the news, and it would go to different pages. You could go scroll. It was sort of like a forerunner to the internet, but it was a load of rubbish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, we also had the Rumble in the Jungle, where Muhammad Ali knocked out George Foreman. Right. John Lennon joined Elton John on stage at Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've always mentioned Rubik's Cube was invented. But also, I, li- I like this one because I was a big fan of the game, Dungeons & Dragons was released in the US. Oh, very cool. Uh, Kraftwerk released his Autobahn. That's from a friend, Rich, who likes all the electronic music. <laughs> gotcha. And most interestingly was the last Japanese World War II soldier, Taiwan-born Private Teru Nakamura, surrendered on the Indonesian island of Marota 34 years after beginning service. Wow, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, now, I, I always found that story fascinating when I was a kid. Yeah, for sure. So that was 1974. All right. Okay, well, uh, before we get started, I'm just going to go ahead and preamble this by saying... You know, it's time for... I really need a theme song for this. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Mike's Controversial Opinion of the Week. Okay. And uh, my... <laughs> yeah, we should get a little jingle. First. Yeah, I really should. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if any listeners out there want to create a jingle for Mike's Controversial Opinion of the Week, <laughs> be my guest. <laughs> Meanwhile, my Controversial Opinion of the Week is I do not love 70s cinema. If I had to pick my least favorite decade of cinema, it would be the 70s. And I know that that's the era that most people consider like the most... You know, impactful and important and amazing. You know, it decade a, of it filmmaking. It was a big decade for film. Yeah, and I hate most of them. I, <laughs> I really just don't like the seventies. I it's everything is dark and grim and gritty and seven and a half hours long. And boy, I just I'm not I'm not really a fan. So this is an interesting. Could, interesting. Uh, lots, lots. There are lots of yeah, as you say, lots of dark and depressing films. But I some incredibly well made films. But I, yeah, I understand the way. There are lots of downers in the 70s. Right. And I do. Probably lots of uppers were also taken in the 70s. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Phil will be here all week. Yeah. Try the face. (laughs) I, um, I, you know, listen, I mean, to be fair, I I do love, I'm sure there's a lot of films from the 70s that I love, and I'm going to talk about some of them in my list, but Mm -hmm. by and large, I'm not a huge fan of the 70s. And, and just to just to prove my point, though, I want to point out there are three films out of my top 10 that are 90 minutes. And the average running time of my top ten films is still two hours and one minute. That's the, I did the math. The, the average oh, yeah, running okay. time is a full two hours and one minute. And that's with three 90-minute films on the list. So that just tells you something about the kind of the, the bloat, if you will, of the yeah. of the decade. But One thing as well I did notice for some of the films on my list, there was the release dates were sort of uh, like December-ish or January of the year. So... They might have been out in the the US maybe the year before the year after, but as far as I can see, they were 
1974 films at some point. Right. Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah. you know, we have Depending had on the some country people, and so. Right. We have had some people ask online about that because uh, one of the films we mentioned from 86 came out a different year, a different country. You know, obviously yeah. with Phil and I being from different countries and the way movie release dates work, there, there's occasionally probably going to be a film that may yeah. – or may not have come out in a slightly different year in your neck of the woods. We're just going to do the best we can. And hopefully, yeah. you know, obviously the spirit of the list will remain the same. So we're not going to yeah. get too bogged down in whether it was, you know, December of 74 or January of 75 with limited release or, you know, whatever. We're just going to we're just gonna go with the list and, and see what happens. So, so and, and again, as we always say, we're not saying that these were the best films of the year. We're just saying these are the ones we really enjoyed. Exactly. All right. Well, I'll kick things off because uh, I may as well get through the 70s as quickly as I can. <laughs> My number 10 is Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, which is Ooh, something. Yeah. yeah, it's something of a cult classic. It's a very oddball film. It's a modern disco rock update of Phantom of the Opera. It is a musical, like a rock and roll musical. It's very surreal. It's very bizarre. It has Paul Williams in one of the leading roles. And it's it's a very unique film, but I have to say it, it stands out for me just because it was so different. And it's kind of kooky and it's a little too long, like I've said. Yeah. <laughs> but I do like Brian De Palma and this was one of his, you know, it's before he got into his Hitchcock era and all that stuff. So it's it's definitely a very different movie for him. So It, it is. It it is a crazy film. Yeah, it is. So that's yeah. that's my number 10. But that kind of just tells you where I'm at with the 70s, that if that makes my number 10, you know, I didn't have a lot to yeah. choose from for this year. So <laughs> okay. okay. Well, uh, my number 10 is uh, Sam Peckinpah's Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Mm, good choice. Which, which stars the, the brilliant Warren Oates. And it's a it's another, it's a bizarre kind of film, but it's a, it's a guy goes to try and get the head of this dead criminal. Because he knows he'll get a lot of money for it, and he just he basically loses the plot as he's as he's going along. But it's a it's a great film. Very cool. Now I'm going to yeah. say the other thing that's going to work against me on this list is that I haven't seen a lot of films from the 70s because because I generally don't care for the era. I've skipped over a lot of films that might show up on other people's lists. So this will be interesting because you know I'm sure there's going to be some choices that I would have included if I'd seen them. Uh, but that's not one that I've seen. <laughs> it's the nature, nature of the game, and I'm sure you will will be pointing out films that some people haven't seen, and sure. they'll, they'll know films that we've not seen. Yeah, that's true. It's true. All right, so moving on, then. My number nine is The Taking of Pelham 123, which is a great subway heist movie starring Walter Matthau and Robert Shaw, and it's oh, yeah. uh, just a cracking good thriller, a lot of fun, very tense. Yeah. Oh, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good film, and it almost made my list. Right. I think, I think it did at one point. Let me just check my list. Because it did change a few times. Sure, sure. It. Yeah, it didn't. Uh, it didn't make the final cut. But Fair it's, enough. Uh, it's a very good film. Yep. And if you've if you've only seen the one, the remake with uh, John Travolta and Denzel Washington, uh, go see the original because it's it's an amazing film. Yes, agreed, agreed. Also, was that one of those? It was a was it that film which gave Quentin Tarantino the idea to use uh, colors for the names in Reservoir Dogs? I believe it is actually. Maybe. Yes. Yeah. I want to say that they have similar code names in yeah. the film. Yes. Because it's all colors in that one, isn't it? Right. Right. Yeah, we'll say it is. Yeah, we'll say it is. Sure. Why not? <laughs> Okay, so for my number nine, I've got The Golden Voyage of Simbad. Mm, another one I haven't seen. Oh, yeah. You've not seen, you, <laughs> well, you got, maybe I have. Uh, Let me take that back. This was the one that was obviously got Ray Harryhausen's brilliant stop-motion animation. Yes, yes, I have seen that one. Okay. Well, a few of them did. It had John Philip Law as Simbad and starred Tom Baker, who was one of the doctors in Doctor Who. Right. And it had the guy with the golden mask to hide his disfigured face. And they go off. And what were the creatures that were in there? There was the yeah, the six-armed uh, Kali. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's one of the... Ray Harryhausen ones, right? And there's a Griffin and a Centaur, and it's 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 a Ray Harryhausen, and he's great. And I think 
I always I always love watching his films. Sure, sure. I remember watching that one a lot when I was a kid. Yeah, it's one of those ones. Yeah, you as a kid, and it just also had Caroline Monroe, which didn't hurt. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, but uh, yeah, it's a good film, and it's uh, I right. like it. Very good. I always find that Sinbad though. In recent years, they are. It's. I think they've tried to do a few Sinbad films, but they never like taken off. Yeah, and I think they did a TV show also. You know, it's, yeah. it seems like they keep trying to relaunch the character, but they can't seem to get it right for some reason. Because it's it's a great character. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, hopefully, one day we'll see another good one. I'm sure we will. I'm sure it's, yeah. everything cycles yeah. around eventually. Yeah. So for my number eight, here we go. This is going to be my my oddball choice, if you will, and it is Herbie Rides Again. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I am an unabashed fan of the Love Bug movies. I love the original Love Bug. I love Herbie Rides Again. I even have a soft spot for Herbie Goes Bananas, although obviously the weakest of the three. But, yeah, I just find those <laughs> movies really endearing. I, I think they're really fun. I watched them not long ago. They hold up really well. I can't wait to introduce them to my kids. I think they'll really enjoy them as well. So Herbie Rides Again. I'm not embarrassed. Well, I was, you shouldn't be because I was, I was like the heavy films. Yeah, they're great, aren't they? Yeah, always good fun. I mean, it's funny how much character you can get out of just like a, a Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> right, so right. It's, it's got me that. Yeah, yeah it but, really no, is. Good pick. Thank you. So my number eight, we've got uh, James Bond film, The Man with the Golden Gun. Mm-hmm. Excellent choice. Roger Moore. For those who don't know, James Bond is his part. Everybody knows James Bond. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we've got Roger Moore uh, going up against Christopher Lee as Scaramanga, the man with three nipples, yeah. on a golden gun. Right. But it's a... Uh, it's a great Bond film, lots of fun, all the classic elements, and it's also got the dude from Fantasy Island in it, which doesn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's definitely the highlight, is ta- yeah, Tattoo showing up. Yeah, there you go. Yep. <laughs> very nice. For number seven, I have Blazing Saddles, the Mel Brooks classic. Oh, very good. I don't know what else I can say about it, but it's Blazing Saddles. Either you've seen it or you haven't. You could always, you could always what about... <laughs> there we go. There you go. That was a qu- an actual quote from the film. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> okay, we've got uh, my number seven is California Split, which was directed by Robert Altman and stars Elliot Gould and George Siegel as a pair of gamblers. Uh, it's uh, 70s one, as we know. Well, that's a stupid thing to say. <laughs> yeah, the pair of, pair of gamblers, it's, it's quite funny. It's quite dramatic. Uh, I think the recent, I've not seen it though, but Mississippi Ground with Ryan Reynolds and Ben Mendelsohn yeah Ben, ben Mendelsohn I think it's sort of I think that new film is sort of a take on this one but uh, makes sense Ca- California Split's a, it's a great little movie sounds good I'll have to watch yeah, it one of these days yeah cause... one of those good uh, gambling ones that you sometimes get to come along every now sure. and then sure always a fun genre for the most part I think yeah 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 well my number six is a return to the genre that we all know that I love very much and it is the classic disaster film Earthquake starring Charlton Heston <laughs> and I want to say this is one of the first disaster films that I saw actually on television when I was young and uh, the 70s were a great era for those big disaster picks you know and, and oh yeah they had those lots of them didn't they? Earthquake is yeah Earthquake is definitely one of the best and a little long as I've mentioned but it's great it looks fantastic and uh, it, for my money it still holds up even though some of the special effects obviously are a little bit dated but great fun yeah good stuff and my number six uh, is a horror one it's the texas chainsaw massacre mm. uh, written directed by toby hooper and it's a classic horror film and what i always liked the first time i saw it was the fact you get the creepy hitchhike at the beginning and then nothing really much happens for quite a bit but then suddenly bam leatherface is there and it's just it's it's really it's very unsettling it's I think it's more, it's not so much scary. Well, it is scary, but it's more unsettling than anything else because it just has this sort of, uh, like a heightened realism to it. Right. So there's something about it, which is different from lots of other horror movies, but it just, it stuck with me. Sure. Well, I think it's yeah. stuck with a lot of yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Very good. Yeah, it's, you know, it didn't make my list. I'm not going to lie. I, I've never been a huge fan of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre films. Uh, I do appreciate the first one. It is a very disturbing film, and I think it's a little beyond where where I like to go with my horror films. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, but but I mean, obviously, it's a classic of the genre, and and I do respect it for what it you know what it what it did and and how it was made. But uh, Definitely a little bit outside of my of my top ten. Oh, totally understandable. Very nice. All right. Well, my number five then is a film that has appeared on your list already. It is The Man with the Golden Gun. I'm a huge James Bond fan. Always have been. Always will be. I actually mm-hmm. do like Roger Moore very much, even though I know he's probably the least favorite James Bond of them all. Uh, well, he was the first one I saw as a, as a kid. Yeah, it was uh, Living Let Die. Exactly. I, I think I have a theory that most people's favorite James Bond is the one that they grow up watching. Mm, and yeah. so while I wouldn't qualify Roger Moore as my favorite James Bond, I certainly do uh, really uh, very much appreciate him as Bond. And I do love his movies, you know, regardless. So mm. but there you go. That's my pick. Very good. Yeah. My number five is Francis Ford Coppola's. Wait for it. The Conversation mm-hmm. starring Gene Hackman, Terry Garr, Robert Duvall, uh, Harrison Ford and a few other people. Gene Hackman, he plays a surveillance expert who's put in a difficult situation. He's listening things, and he's not sure what he's listening to, whether it's the right thing or not. Gets paranoid. It's a brilliant, it's a tour de force of acting from Gene Hackman. It's a very well-made film, great. But as you say, it's got one of those, it's a bit bleak as well, as many many uh, 1970s films were. And also in uh, Enemy of the State, there's sort of that kind of nod Gene Hackman's character could also be the same sort of character from the conversation. Right, right, exactly. That is a great little mm-hmm. tribute, if you will. But a great movie. Indeed, very good choice. My number four pick is The Godfather Part Two. Francis Ford Coppola was the director, starring Al Pacino and a cast of thousands. I can't even name them all here. Yeah, um, yeah. Honestly, the only reason The Godfather 2 came up so high on my list and didn't make it into the top first spot or second spot was because it's just so long. <laughs> Three hours and 22 minutes. I mean, it's... It's really like a, a like two films. I actually had to watch it over two nights because I couldn't make it through. And I remember getting through like an hour and a half the first night and then checking the time and realizing I still had two whole more hours to get through. <laughs> like, you know, it's just it's so long. And so I love it. It's a great yeah. film, but it, it definitely lost a few points for just a ridiculously long running time. Understandable. Yeah. Yeah. OK, well, my number four is Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Roman Polanski, Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, John Huston. Um Beautiful looking film, uh, great uh, noir mystery. Uh, goes to very dark places, and but uh, Jack Nicholson looks amazing wearing a plaster for most of it right. on his nose. Yeah, yep. no, just a really, really good film. Well, I'm going to say that's another one that isn't on my list, believe it or not. And the reason for that, here, here I need, a, I definitely need a jingle because this is going to be Mike's second controversial <laughs> opinion of the week. I, dun, 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 yeah, dun. <laughs> thank you. I hate Jack Nicholson. Oh my god. With a passion. I always have. I do not I do not like him at all. I think he turned in about three good performances in the 70s and then pretty much has just done the exact same thing in every movie he's ever been in. Uh, since then, so, oh my so um, that explains why I didn't like Christian Slater for the crown. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, Christian Slater's all right. I just don't think he would have been a good fit for that. But uh, yeah, I don't. I've seen Chinatown. It's a good film. Um, you know, I I I don't hate it or anything like that. But um, yeah. I just I just am not a fan of most anything that Jack Nicholson is involved in, with, with a couple of exceptions. So uh, yeah, that one definitely falls short for me. 
Sorry. Well, that's okay. I mean, if you don't like an actor, can it can color you to lots of lots of films? And, right. Yeah. yeah. It's hard. It's hard to enjoy a film where somebody you don't like as an actor is in almost every frame of it. But yeah. you know, listen. My mission apparently is to just you know completely you know bleed us mm-hmm. of listeners by <laughs> angry They'll people. They'll keep coming back to see we, what you're going to say next. Right. They're going to come back that's just so they can is. be like, "What ridiculous crap is Mike is Mike going <laughs> to spew this week?" Well, it made one of our lists. Oh, there you go. There you go. So that's, that's good. Yeah. So you, as always, you're safe. We, we cover we cover for everything you see. Right. <laughs> All right. What about your number three? My number three is the Mel Brooks classic, Young Frankenstein, or Frankenstein, as it may be correctly pronounced, <laughs> starring Gene Wilder, Marty Feldman, and Madeline Kahn. Of course, it's a comedy classic. I think it's pretty much one of the most popular comedies of all time, so I don't think I need to tell people how great it is. But if you haven't seen it, it's pretty darn great. Put the candle back. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, My number three was, you've already mentioned it, was The Godfather Part 2. Very good. I think both of them were nominated. Both uh, The Godfather Part 2 and The Conversation were nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, I mean, how do you turn out The Godfather Part Two and The Conversation in the same year? I mean, that's... It's crazy, isn't it? I know they were made at different yeah. times, but still, that's a pretty ridiculous yeah. one-two punch for a director. So many, good, so many good actors, so many great moments in the film, great scenes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, how does Al Pacino not win that Oscar that year, too, for yeah, Best Actor? It was, yeah, that one kills me. It's, it is it's bizarre, isn't it? But it's, I mean, you watch, you watch The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. it's just a huge, great big amazing story of yeah that'll take a week of your life yeah. i know but with these these amazing performances and i think this similar thing with you it wasn't higher i mean it sounds a bit silly but it was it's just a bit too long it's not one of the ones you can just throw on and go yeah right well that's and exactly it, you know th- th- there's others i enjoy watching a lot more well there's two more i obviously i enjoy <laughs> right. watching a lot more right so what about your number two so number two uh once again a film that's appeared on your list and it is the conversation speaking of the francis ford coppola one-two punch there uh much like you said it's a great film an awesome conspiracy paranoia thriller and there's sort of a I don't want to reveal anything, but the the way the way things are revealed at the end, yeah, is like it really. When I first watched it, it really caught me by surprise, and I was just like, "Oh, that is brilliant," you know. And yeah, so it's it just sort of, the way yeah, the way it delivers everything. It just right, yeah, right. It's just a really cool film. So I, I do love that movie. The final scene always just stuck with me yep, as well. Yep, exactly. No good pick. Uh, my number two is you've mentioned this one, uh, Young Frankenstein. Right, right. Mel Mel Brooks. Jim Wilder. Who are the other people we didn't mention? Terry Gar, Cloris Leachman, Peter Boyle, of course. Oh, the right, of course. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's a brilliant, beautiful black and white film. Very, very funny and so quotable. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. All right, so time for the number one. Now, I'm interested because I don't think that your number one and mine are going to be the same. So I'm very curious to see what you come up with. But my Ooh, number okay. one yeah. film of 1974 is, once again, a disaster movie. And it is The Towering <laughs> Inferno. Uh, I had a feeling it might be that Yeah, one one of my all-time favorites. You know, and and again, I know I've said this a lot tonight, but these movies are 30 years old. No, they're 40 years old now. You know, The Towering Inferno really holds up well because the special effects being fire isn't anything that really dates. So the fashions and stuff and the hairstyles are a little out of date, but the story holds up really well. And the, the, you know, there's a little bit, it takes a little bit to get going in the beginning, but then once the fire breaks out, man, you're talking just like, you know, an hour and a half of pure suspense and action and you know destruction and i'm as fred astaire yeah fred astaire is in it you know steve mcqueen i mean just a great cast great film one of those movies that if you haven't seen i i do highly recommend so so that's my number one pick well yeah i was that that didn't make my list because i i think the problem was the first time i saw it i was i was a young kid and my mom and dad were watching it and i 
as you said, it takes a while to get going, and it just bored the pants of me the first time I saw it. I can understand that. I, I've seen it. I've seen it since, and uh, enjoyed it a lot more being older. But it's uh, yeah, wasn't going to make my list though because of seeing it. As sure, a kid. fair enough, fair enough. But it, it's an amazing cast was put together. Oh, yeah. I think wasn't it put. Didn't Paul Newman and uh, Steve McQueen make sure they had exactly the same amount of words? Yeah, that's the that's the legend. I've never I've never fact checked that. I like to think that's true. That's a good story. That one, <laughs> right? Also, but what is true though, and this is a story that uh, the aforementioned Mark Kermode likes to trot out pretty regularly. So, if there's any listeners who listen to that show, you'll have already heard this story. But it is true that there was an issue with the billing as to who was going to get top billing. So uh, I forget which one goes which, but one of their names was lower and to the left, and the other one's <laughs> name was higher and to the right. So that that neither one of them could be seen as being you know, above or before the other one. And that's actually a practice that has continued on to this day when you have equal co-stars. A lot of times you'll see that approach so that you can't ever fully say who's first or who's second. You know, So, so that, is, that is true. Okay, I'll have to, I'll have to look out yep. for that on post. Yep. Oh, good stuff. Okay, well, my number one, it's... it's yeah, like what do you got? One you've already mentioned, and it's another Mel Brooks film. It's Blazing Saddles. Ah, there you go. Of course, I should have known. Because it just... Uh, I've loved it since the first time I've seen it. I know... It's it's not as tight, I think, as Young Frankenstein. And uh, as my friend Pete mentioned the other day, as well, he said the end sort of falls apart a little bit. Right. But it's just, I just remember every time I see it, it just makes me laugh so much. Even now, even though you know what's coming up, just <laughs> just so funny. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, like Heady and yep. Hadley. Yeah. It's just yeah, I just love it. Cleveland Little, Gene Wilder, Harvey Corman, Slim Pickens, Madeline Kahn, Dom DeLuise at the end. It's just just a wonderful, wonderful, funny movie. Without a doubt. I don't think anybody yeah. can really argue with Blazing yeah. Saddles being yeah. your top choice for the yeah. year. So, Very nice. That was our 1974. Okay, so Phil, why don't you run down the box office for us and see how we stacked up against the, the numbers. Well, we did have some, yeah, some quite, we had quite a few films actually in this top 10. But the uh, the top box office for the year of 1974, we had number 10, Murder on the Orient Express. Good one. Yeah, n- number 9 was Herbie Rides Again. Yay! Yeah, I know she got there. Number 8 was Benji. Uh huh. Almost made my list, actually. Yeah, uh, actually, I don't know. I don't know if I've actually seen that one. Oh, right. Quite a few Benji films. They probably right. all. I might have seen it, but they all blend into one. Yeah. Uh, number seven was The Longest Yard. Mm-hmm. Number six was Earthquake. Right. Number five, Young Frankenstein, which we both had. Yep. Number four, Man with the Golden Gun. Yep. Because everybody loved Bond. Of course. Number three was Godfather Part Two. Wow. So we weren't that far off. I no, I'm, sur- I'm surprised though. I, th- I would have guessed it was the highest grossing of the year. No, no. Uh, number two was Towering Inferno. Yay. Uh, number one was Blazing Saddles. Well, there you go. All right, so we were clearly, uh, you know, somewhat on the on the pulse of the moviegoers yeah. of the seventies. But yeah, not too far. Only a couple of differences. Right. All right, so if you have a top 10 list of 1974 and you would like to share that with us for us to read out on the air, we would love for you to do that. Phil, why don't you tell people how they can get a hold of us? Okay, on Twitter, we are down as after underscore the ending, and you can find us on facebook.com backslash after the ending podcast. And just for those of you, if you want to try and listen to us on a different way, we're on iTunes and also on SoundCloud. If you search for After the Ending on both, we will pop up. Right. And you can email us now at afterthending at verizon.net. That's V-E-R-I-Z-O-N, verizon.net. All right. So, Phil, what are we going to be tackling next week? Next week, we will be trying to discover the secrets of the three shells because we'll be talking about Demolition Man and Guys and Dolls. That's a bit of a mix, isn't it? Yeah. It's fun to mix things up a little (laughs) bit. Go back to the 50s. This will be our first kind of classic film, I think, won't it? Yeah. 
I think so, yeah, the ones we've done. Yeah, so that'll be yeah. fun. It'll be our first musical, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely that. So it's uh, going to be interesting. Right. And also we will be looking at the, our top 10 films of the year 1997. Ah, 1997. Good times, good times. Uh, but at the minute, I can't think of any film from 1997. Well, that'll be the fun, won't it? Discovering yeah. what good yes. and what terrible films came out in that year. So Yes, it should be fun. Alrighty, well, that's going to wrap us up for this evening. We want to thank you all once again for listening. As always, if you can swing over to iTunes, and leave us a review and or a rating that would be greatly appreciated five stars five stars is the best and with that we will leave you to enjoy your movies i'm mike spring and i'm phil edwards and we'll see you next week after the ending i'm very excited looking forward to uh, the guest the guest spot excellent mm. don't sound too excited there phil <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you're, you're like mm. i don't mm. uh, I keep saying no a lot, so I'm sorry about having to get rid of all these. <laughs> That's all right. I'm used to it from myself. <laughs> uh, they, oh, I did it again. So. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, why don't we move on to another the movie with a four-letter word? That sounds very wrong when I put it that way. <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> Let me try that again. <laughs> so why don't we move on then to our second film, which is very near and dear to my heart, and it is The Crow. Yep, yep. <laughs> Sorry. I was having to sip of water then. <laughs> yep, yep. No, no, listen, that? hey, you yep, know, yep. when you when you offer biting commentary like that, who am I to argue, you know? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm on a roll. It's very deep, Phil, very deep. Well, uh, my friends, they often say they, that when I, they ask me what a film was like, I often just say it was all right. Right. But I like to think it's different levels. I go, if it's really good, I go, it was all right. Right. <laughs> but if it's, if it's not that good, it was well, it was all right. Right, I, I get you. I understand. You know, and then there's lots. There's about seventy different levels in between. <laughs> right. <laughs> Officer Albrecht meets a young girl named Sarah, who is a friend of Eric and Shelley's. They, she, bleh. <laughs> all right. Let me get it up here. So, okay, that sounded bad. I can't say that. <laughs> So according to Jay, the screening process for recruiting people to the last, not to the last Starfighter program, that would be a terrible program to be in. <laughs> hey, hey, come on. We got a class of 30. One of you is going to be the last Starfighter. Yeah. Oy. Imagine none of it was literally called <laughs> right? the last Starfighter. Yeah. I never thought of that before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. Yay, I'm the last one. <laughs> right. All my friends are dead. You've got to fight these thousands of other people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good luck. The Thing, one of my all-time favorite films of all time. I'll say all time one more because <laughs> yes. it is of all time. <laughs> yeah. Get in touch with us on Twitter and you can find us there. What's the word? At. at that's not flowing at all, is it? Mmm, <laughs> should be a good time indeed. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Keep saying mmm. Mm. <laughs> all right. Mm-hmm.